Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you happen to be around the church office on a weekday around noon, sometimes earlier, sometimes later, it's not unusual to hear someone ask, so what's for lunch? It might even get yelled down the hall. And invariably, somebody will say, well, I brought lunch today, but where are we going? Which then begins a conversation about what we should have for lunch and where we should go to get it. And the the first thing that impacts that conversation is, are we going to go and eat at the restaurant? Or are we going to try and see if somebody is willing to go and pick up lunch and bring it back to the church so we can eat here? I got to be honest, I try to never be that person. (laughs) If I can avoid it. Um... So sometimes I'm, you know, I'm willing to pay if they're willing to, to go. But you know, the, the conversation then is what do we feel like, what do we had last time, and about once a week, the, uh, the answer to what is for lunch is a sandwich. A sandwich. And when it's a sandwich, almost always the answer is to go to Togo's. To go to Togo's. And we've got the app so we can place the order on my phone and then they can just go and pick it up and then bring it back and then we can eat. It always seems to take longer to pick it up than it seems like it should because once you place the order, I'm like ready to eat. There is something about sandwiches that are better if somebody else makes them. Um, And actually I said that in the first service and somebody explained to me on the way out of worship that uh, it has to do with the olfactory and is that smelling and smelling the ingredients in there and as you're making it actually you get used to those smells but if somebody else makes it then you're smelling it and tasting it for the first time together. I, I, I think it's true. So Robin if you just go ahead and make all my sandwiches I would enjoy them so much more. And it seems like that'd be true of other things, right? I mean, it's going to taste better if somebody else cooks, you know, the meal too. So maybe there's something to that. I'm not sure. But I do know I like a good sandwich for lunch. And having lived across country, one of the things that struck me is how many different names there are for sandwiches. There's a Dagwood. There's a Grinder. Anybody heard of a Grinder? A Hoagie. A Hero. And then just like a deli sandwich, right? I mean, just plain old deli sandwich. I'm not sure. I have yet to figure out if all of those names actually really differentiate and describe different types of sandwiches or if those are just different names for the same type of sandwiches. I think there's something about some sandwiches being heated and others not. And I don't don't know. In Connecticut, we had grinders. But I don't know what made them grinders. I still am confused by it. Um... Now, what we did have in Connecticut were a lot of subways, and we never go to Subway. Um, And we figured out one of the reasons, our town of 15,000 had three Subway stores. That seems like a high per capita, every 5,000 people, one Subway. The Subway is sort of like the the sandwich version of Dunkin' Donuts on the East Coast. They're everywhere, but they're not very good. (laughs) Turns out they both were founded in New England. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts was uh, founded in in Rhode Island, and uh, Subway was founded in Bridgeport, Connecticut. So I suppose maybe that's one of the reasons they're so prolific there, or they just haven't developed a taste for good sandwiches or donuts. 
Did you know that there is a, a, there's a city or a town in New England that's named Sandwich? It's not where Subway was founded, but there is, it's not, it should be though, right? Wouldn't that have been amazing if that was, it's actually on the, the end of Cape Cod. When you cross the river to go out onto, onto the Cape, um, it's one of the first towns you encounter, and uh, it's actually considered to be one of the oldest towns, or the oldest town on Cape Cod, and there's a, <clears throat> a, a history museum there and some beautiful grounds. It's the history of Cape Cod, I think, not the history of the sandwich. So if you happen to be in the area, I recommend it. So why all this talk about sandwiches? Well, if you're in Bill's class, you know. Um, the gospel writer of Mark uses a lot of sandwich stories, uh, stories that are bracketed. And this morning we had a sandwich as I read the gospel, that we, and we may not have even realized it. It was an open-faced sandwich. We had the bottom slice of the bread. We had the meat of the sandwich. We just didn't have the top. And uh, we, if we'd have read another couple verses, we'd already read 29, so I guess what why not? But 29 seemed like enough verses. If we'd have read the last 30 and 31, we would have read that the disciples returned to Jesus and told him about what had gone on while they were out teaching and healing. So the sandwich this morning that we read about is the disciples being sent, the disciples returning, and in between we read another story. Last week Andrea talked about a sandwich and Chapter 5, when if you were here or watched online or paid attention or remember or have read it or were in Bill's class, it was a story of the healing of Jairus' daughter. Jesus and the disciples were in a crowd and uh, Jairus came up to him and said, my daughter is sick, will you come and, and, and heal her? And Jesus says, okay. And on his way there, the hemorrhaging woman touches the, the, Jesus' cloak, the hem of his cloak. And Jesus stops. And so the story of the healing of Jairus' daughter stops while we then read the story of the healing of the hemorrhaging woman where Jesus stops. He knows that somebody has touched him. All the power has drained out of him. He asks who has, has a conversation with this woman, tells her your faith has made you well. And then we get the top piece of bread or the bracket to the story where Jesus continues on his way towards Jairus' house and ultimately um, heals Jairus' daughter by touching her. Two stories, one story bracketing another, or a sandwich, so to speak. Why does Mark do this? He does this so that the meat of the story, which is arguably the best part if you eat meat, I don't, but if you did eat meat, you'd have to say that's probably the best part of the sandwich, right? So the meat of the story explains or reinforces the other story that's being told around it. So in the case of the healing stories, it is the faith of Jairus that leads to the healing of his daughter. And it's the faith of the hemorrhaging woman that leads to her healing. And both of those healings happen when the hemorrhaging woman touches Jesus or when Jesus touches Jairus's daughter. So it's about healing coming through faith. And if you read at the beginning of our reading this morning, we read that, that the people didn't understand who Jesus was. They questioned who he is. And it said he couldn't perform any miracles there, just a few healings. And then Jesus lamented that the people in his hometown didn't have faith. Could he not heal because he didn't have power? Or could he not heal because the people in his own hometown didn't have faith in him? 
I would suggest the latter when you look at it following those other healing stories. So in our reading this morning, we've got Jesus returning to his hometown, and we've got the people of his town mocking him, making fun of him, questioning his lineage. They say, who is this man who's teaching these things? He's just a carpenter. That's Mary's boy. Mary's boy. I happen to be Mary's boy. But in Jesus' time, those are fighting words. You never described a man but as being the son of his mother. He was always described as being the son of his father. Even if his mother had died, you would say that he was the son of whoever his father was. But by saying that Jesus is the son of Mary, they're calling into question his legitimacy. Who is his father? Do we even know who Jesus' father is? So it's a jab at Jesus. So what we see in that story is Jesus laying, or Mark laying the foundation for even Jesus not receiving hospitality when he's sharing the good news, when he's teaching about who he is and what he came to accomplish. And then Jesus sends out the 12 in pairs. And as he does so, he tells them basically take nothing. Mr. Justin showed us what, what we take out, our preschool teachers take when we're evacuating the kids and we need to be prepared if there's an emergency. But when Jesus sends out the 12 in pairs, don't take any food, don't take any money, don't even take a second tunic, which would have been helpful at night when it gets cold. Go out and rely upon the hospitality of strangers. Well, Jesus didn't receive hospitality from his hometown, from his neighbors, from his kin. And he's saying, now go among the strangers and, and rely on them to give you what you need while you are staying with them. Best case scenario, they do. Worst case scenario, shake the dirt off of your sandals as you leave. Don't bring their dirty dirt with you as you go along your way. Because the reality is there will be challenges. There will be pain. There will be suffering that comes as a result of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. For them, that suffering comes as not receiving hospitality. For Jesus, we see he suffered when they didn't actually even acknowledge him in his hometown and essentially called him names, which may not be as obvious to us in our culture today. Well, that story begins, and then abruptly then, we've got this story that is the meat of our sandwich. We'll call it mystery meat, because we don't know why it's there. This story of the beheading of John the Baptist. What's it doing here? Why is it being told now? Well, what we know in Mark's gospel already is that Jesus had been baptized by John back in chapter 1, and that is Jesus was sent out into the wilderness by the, the spirit to be tempted by Satan, we have one line that says John had been imprisoned. So all the way at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, before it actually even starts, John is in prison. He gets off the stage, re removes himself, or is removed from the picture so that Jesus can step in and begin his ministry. And now we read what happened to John. And actually in a flashback, we're told what happened back then. As a disciple of Jesus, as someone who was called not to follow Jesus, but actually to go before Jesus, uh, John suffers. 
John suffers and is, as, and is, and is imprisoned because, for, because of the teachings that he did and the way that it challenged the authorities of the time. Herod married his brother's sis, uh, wife. Ooh. And apparently, there's a law against that. I don't know why you needed a law, but there was a law against that. And so John called that into question, which, which angered um, Herod's new wife, his brother's ex-wife, Herodias. And so she was out to get John, and, and we know that Herod was afraid of John for the ways that he taught and the things that he said. And he challenged um, Herod. John challenged Herod with the gospel that he was preaching. And John had had a pretty successful ministry. He had been out in the wilderness. He'd been baptizing people. We know that he had his own disciples. And now he finds himself imprisoned. And what is the price that John pays for his discipleship of Jesus? But he loses his head. So this story is told in between the story of the sending of the twelve and their return as a reminder of the potential costs of discipleship, of being sent by Jesus, used by Jesus to share the good news of the gospel, there is a cost associated. And if we question whether there should be a cost, we should probably reflect upon what the good news of the gospel is. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ loved us so much that he died for us in order that we might have life through him. So in response to that, we say, I believe and want to follow. And in doing so, we might experience, we should be prepared to experience some challenges. Maybe it's somebody not providing us with hospitality. Somebody who's rude to us or doesn't listen to what we have to say or doesn't welcome us into their home or doesn't want to be our friends anymore. And that would be like what the disciples experienced. In a worst case scenario, maybe we would be arrested. Maybe we would have our heads chopped off as a result of being a disciple of Jesus. Has anybody here had that happen? Fortunately, it doesn't happen so much today. At least not in this country. We know there are places where it does indeed happen. And there are, are martyrs and disciples of Jesus who stand up for their faith, share their faith, and it costs them their life. I think these two stories give us a, a, a sense of the, the variety of responses, of, of prepare us for the variety of negative responses we might receive when we too are being sent out. Sent out, maybe not with all the knowledge, maybe not with all the resources, but sent out with the power of the gospel to share the good news of God's love with our neighbors. We may not have a PowerPoint. We may not feel like we know every verse of the Bible to answer every question, but we too have been sent out. Sent out to share the good news of God's love that others might come to faith. I said in chapter 5 when we read about Jairus, the healing of Jairus' daughter and uh, the healing of the hemorrhaging woman, it was their faith that made them well. My question is, how about your faith? Do you have the faith sufficient to go out not knowing how you might be responded to? Or when you are challenged to go out or to share the good news or to answer questions about your faith, do you calculate the cost? 
well, if I tell them what I really think, are they going to ask me questions I can't answer and I'm going to be embarrassed? Are they going to tell me I'm just another one of those religious nut jobs? Are they going to ask me to leave? Are they going to quit inviting me to their parties? Are they going to quit? Or do you respond in faith? The Jairus and, uh, and the hemorrhaging woman's faith was sufficient that they received, well, Jairus' daughter and the hemorrhaging woman, they received healing. They received new life through the power of the gospel. I'm sure each of them suffered some as a result. Did Jairus lose some status within the synagogue where he had been a leader? Maybe. But I bet if you were to ask him, he would say it was well worth it. And he would have done it time and time again to receive the healing for his daughter whom he loved. And that hemorrhaging woman who had spent all of her money, all of this time trying to get healed by doctors and and others, would say that that the risk of going into that crowd and touching the, the hem of Jesus' cloak was worth it in order to be made well again. So the question I think for each of us is, do we believe? Do we allow ourselves to believe and to trust in the power of the gospel? If we do, I think we may be surprised by how good our lives can be. For the meat of the story of discipleship may not end up being what we would have ordered for ourselves when we get it. It might be a little sour or something, maybe like Braunschweiger. It's good for you, but doesn't taste good. I don't know. But the reality is, it is good. It is good, it is filling, and it is ultimately, I would suggest, a happy meal. Happy meal. A hidden hidden prize right in there. I know, I've mixed metaphors, and I did it on purpose. See if you're paying attention. So the question is, as it's almost noon, what's for lunch? All right, get back to me. (laughs) Amen.